I formed this other plan, right? I was like, man, you know, because I was out on bail. I was like, man, I'm going to take the fuck off. Hey, this is Matt Cox, and I'm here with Seth Ferrante, and we're going to do a podcast on Seth's story. Seth was a, you know, I saw on Concrete, it was like the, the uh, what was it? He, he said you were like the LSD kingpin or something, or? Yeah, yeah so basically, uh, Seth was uh, arrested and did 20, 21. you got 25 years. Yeah. Did 20, 21 years in federal prison for selling LSD. Yeah, right. LSD and cannabis. Yeah. And cannabis. Okay, so, all right, check it out. So, um, somebody asked me earlier too, and I, like the first question somebody asked me, and I didn't even know, like, where where, where were you born? Yeah, I was born in Lemoore. Lemoore is actually out in the desert. They call it the Central Coast. It's between LA and San Diego. Okay, and you, I mean, I I kind of know the story. So you you grew up there, and you said you started basically with just what you start off just. Yeah, no, I was, I was, I was a military brat. So I was, I was actually born on a, like a Navy base, you know, it's out in the desert. That's where like they, they, um, like they train fighter pilots, right? you know? So, um, my dad was basically a fighter pilot and, um, but he was the Navy. He used to fly off aircraft carriers. So we we're in San Diego, we we're in Virginia beach. We were in Germany, we were in London, but we always ended back up in California usually until he retired. And that's kind of where my problems started because I was like this California kid and I ended up in Northern Virginia, like in this really kind of uh, lily white upper class area, like right out of Washington, D.C. when I was when I was basically, you know, like a sophomore, junior in high school and being from California, you know, and, and at that age, like, you know, everybody were going out partying and just the weed that they got. They just got like garbage weed. It was like all brick weed, like brown shit. Right. And then uh, like if they could get LSD or something like that, it was just like super expensive, like $20 a hit. So, um, I mean, I knew a lot of people, you know, I had a lot of friends that were getting into that stuff, you know, back in California. So I started getting weed sent, you know, from Northern California, you know, like, like Emerald Triangle, Humboldt County, Bud. And from, from like San Francisco, I started getting LSD sent. Okay. But you were, how, how, I mean, how old were you at that time when you were? Man, I was, I was, I was you young. Were young. I, I was like 16. Yeah. So I was like 16. And at first, I mean, it was just for personal. Right. You know what I'm saying? So I would just get personal, like, you know, five or six of us, we would kind of put our money together and, you know, I'd get it sent and I'd send the money. And, um, but then eventually, like, you know, if, 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 if you do drugs and a lot, a lot, a lot of young kids, you know, kind of figure this out, or at least the smarter young kids figure this out. So when you're young and you're doing drugs, you know, and then finally you're like, well, fuck it. If I can get it, why should I pay for it? Right. So that's like the first thing you're like, you do it for free drugs. But then, you know, after you do that for a while, you're like, well, fuck it. I don't want to pay for it. And I want to make money. Right. So, you know, this was, and it wasn't something that just happened overnight. So this was a gradual thing. Like, you know, over my first probably nine to 12 months in Northern Virginia, you know, where I've like, Hey man, I can make money off this shit, you know? And then, um, and then I, other stuff happened. Like I, I started going on tour, like at 17, I started going on grateful dead tour and uh, anybody that knows anything about the Grateful Dead tour, like in the uh, late 80s, you know, like we're talking like 1988, right. you know, like what they call Shakedown Street or The Lot. I mean, it was basically like an open air drug market. Right. So 
And 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 like I say, when I say open air, air drug market, I don't mean like cocaine, heroin. There there was that stuff around, but it's mostly like like I call you know like I'm a weed and psychedelics dude. You know, right. I was never into cocaine. I was never into heroin, speed. You know, I, I hate amphetamines. I don't even like MDMA. You know, I've never been like a, a you know amphetamine type of guy. So I was always into like the the psychedelics. You know, in cannabis. You know, hash, mushrooms. You know, even stuff like peyote, mescaline. You know, so that was kind of like where I leaned, you know, kind of on that side. So I would go to these dead shows. And the big thing about the dead shows, like, I mean, it's just this big lot and everybody's selling drugs. So I had two reasons I went to the dead shows. One reason is because um, I established a connect down in Kentucky that, that grew weed and they grew pretty good weed, you know, compared to the brick weed from Texas that was coming around. So I would take that weed. I would grab that weed for whatever, 16, 1800 a pound. And I would take that on dead tour and I would sell it for $200 an ounce. And if it was good weed, like what they call kind bud. And when they say kind bud, they were referring to like the bud from Humboldt County, you know, the Emerald Triangle, which I could usually only get in the fall, you know, right. in harvest time. But that's what they wanted. They wanted that good sun grown organic. Because the bud. brick weed was basically crap. The brickweed, yeah, the brickweed was crap. So, yeah. you know, that's what the deadheads wanted, you know, to go with that whole hippie vibe. So I started going and I started selling bud on tour. You know, and I was making a you know considerable amount of money, not doubling my money, but you know I was usually making like you know a thousand, a thousand, twelve hundred pound, and I, it was easier to get. I got better LSD contacts on tour because you know I, I had some friends and they could get like some sheets here and there, but they couldn't really, you know, they couldn't really like hit me off, and I, I had to pay like you know I wasn't paying wholesale prices like they were getting it basically like retail prices, you know, but still you know not not like they were selling hits, you know, I was getting buying whole sheets from yeah. them, you know, so I was probably getting like paying like a dollar or $2 a hit and selling it for $5 a hit. But then I knew if I went on tour and I hooked up with the right people, I could basically get it for like 30, 40 cents a hit. You're not making it though. You're just, you just have a contact. Yeah, no, I, n I never made it. So, you know, but, um, cause when I was locked up, I, I met one guy, the, like the whole time I was locked up, one guy that actually made LSD. I mean, because, you know, it's, it's not like it's easy. It's not like growing, growing weed. It's like yeah. the, this no, guy. No, you got to be a chemist. I yeah. Mean, you you got to be a chemist. So, you yeah. know, so, um, yeah. So what I know about the whole LSD trade is a lot of times at the shows, they would fly in, they would fly in the liquid. So, you know, they would fly in, they fly in like 25 grams, you know, at a time. But, you know, each, each one of those grams makes 10,000 hits, Yeah. you know, to give you the number. So pretty much every dead show... And you, the dead used to crisscross the nation. You know, they used to play everywhere. And they would play multiple nights. So every show, every town, like let's say they played three nights at Philly, you know, from San Francisco, all that stuff is still basically made in that area. You know, all the chemists, you know. And a lot of times it's, it's the same guys from the 60s. You know, maybe they had like, uh, you know, they mentored other guys, younger guys, and brought other guys into the trade. But, you know, it's, it's, like, it's, not, it's not like a big group of people. I mean, they, they keep it pretty you know, secret, because it's a lot to even, like now, to, to even get the precursors and all the other stuff, I mean, they've outlawed a lot of that yeah. stuff, so it's really hard to get the stuff to make it, you know, but, I mean, like I say, one one gram is 10,000 hits, so you don't need a lot. Yeah, he was, the guy was telling me, like, he, they would get the sheets of paper and he, the, you know, perforated sheets of paper, and he was like, it was you, you're literally just putting a, like a, a droplet on each. Yeah, the blotter paper. Well, what also they do is um, they actually, they actually dip it. The, all the whole sheet? Yeah, they, so they dip it. So like what you got, like one sheet 
of 100 hits is about this big. So that's like a sheet. And then they would have what you call like a page. So a page would be like 100 of those. All right, okay. Or no, 10 of those. So that would be like, you know, 1,000 hits. Okay. You know, 100. And then they had what you call a book would be 10 pages. And then, you know, that would be like 10,000 hits. That's like a gram of LSD, you know. But it's all, it's all the blotter paper, you know, it, it absorbs it. And that's pretty much, you know, um, I mean, it's not a perfect science because some places might absorb more than others. Right. You know, I've, I've talked to a lot of chemists. So, you know, that's basically, they've kind of explained a lot of the stuff to me. But, yeah, I've never done it. But I know they would fly it in and, um, you know, then like when they get it there, then they would go through the process of, of laying it on the sheets, you know, where, where they kind of dip it in it or whatever. Right. You know, and uh, they all would also do a lot of liquid. I remember going to the shows, and this is kind of funny because whenever there were shows, they would have a lot of the deadheads or the hippie kids would go to the local grocery stores and they would buy all the boxes of the food coloring. You know, like the food coloring, it comes in these like right. little, little boxes and there's like 10 or something or sometimes five. Right. And those were like what they would use for the vials. So they would get that food coloring and they would pour it all out, you know, and clean it out. And then they would fill that up because that one vial in that food coloring, that was like like 100, that was like 100 hits. You know, so they would sell vials too because some people would do like straight liquid. I even did, I did some liquid one time. So one time I was at some shows in, in, in Pittsburgh, like in 89. And, uh, you know, I'd always been a big fan of Jimi Hendrix. And I, and I used to read how Jimi Hendrix, he used to take his bandana and he would just pour like a whole vial of acid on his bandana and then he would wrap it around his head. You know, so it's not like he was taking 100 hits, but I mean, he was absorbing. Yeah, yeah, he's still absorbing it. A lot of that. So, so one time at this show in Pittsburgh, it was actually right after uh, Brett Midland, the keyboardist, a real popular keyboardist, died. He, he like OD'd on a speedball. And um, I was like, man, I was on this Jimi Hendrix trip. You know, I, maybe I'd seen some documentary or something. I don't know, or read about it in Rolling Stone or something. So I actually took and I poured three quarters of a bottle, basically like 75 hits on a bandana. And then I, then I, I wrapped it around my head. And this is like this is like before the show starts, you know, because back then it was way different back then, like. You had like free reign in the whole stadium, man. It wasn't like all the security, like they cordoned off this area and you can right. only go here with your tickets. Like back then, dude, like you gave your ticket, you went in the stadium you you go know, from the lot. Yeah, you can even go back out to the lot, you know, because the lot's like, you know, Shakedown Street. So it's like a party and stuff like that. So I, this one time I did it and I took all this fucking 75 hits, right? And we're waiting for the show to start. And everybody used to go up to the top. So this is Three River Stadium in Pittsburgh. Everybody would go up to the top and smoke weed, you know, because you don't want to smoke weed. You don't want to front out the security or whatever. So if you went up top, they didn't give a fuck. So we walked up, me and my buddy. He, he'd only take maybe like 25 hits. He took the rest of the bottle. But he drank it, you know. So, you know, he took like really ingested 25 hits. You know, I don't know how... Mine was 75 hits, but it was in a bandana, so it's not like I took 75 hits. Right. But it was, you know, going into my skin. So we walked up to go to the smoking section. You know, everybody's smoking weed. And so we're up there, you know, we, everybody got their, you know, big ounces or quarter pounds. We're rolling up fatties, and we're smoking them. And then, like, the show starts, you know, so, like, everybody goes back down to the field because then it would just be the whole field would just be, like, wide open. Everybody would be dancing. So me and my buddy, though, like, the trip starts, you know, kicking in. Right. So we're like we're like looking at the steps, you know, and you know, like in a lot of the stadiums, I mean, it's it's kind of steep. Right. You know, so we're like you start tripping balls. Right. So 
we don't go back down. We're like, oh, no, we're just going to stay up here. We're going to smoke some more weed. So it ended up, we stayed up there. And this is, this is like, I mean, they used to play, they play like two sets, man. So they play like, you know, like an hour and a half. And then they come back, play another hour and a half. So this is like three hours, dude. Like, we're up there. Like, our friends keep coming up trying to, hey, man, come down. And we're like, we're like, look. And we're like, fuck no. Like, a couple times we would try it to walk down too, the steps. It's too steep, yeah, right? Because we are too tripping cons- fucking balls, man. Right. So we couldn't walk down. So eventually, um, like, the show's over. And, like, we stayed up there the whole time. And eventually everybody leaves, right? And, uh, like the people are going around cleaning, you know, and they're like looking at us like, what the fuck are these dudes doing? You know, we're just up there like smoking weed tripping. And, uh, so I don't even know. It seemed like forever, but eventually like a dude, one of the custodian guys comes to us, you know? And he was like, yo man, he's like, they're about to lock the doors of the stadium. Like you need to go now. You need to get the fuck out of here. And there's like nobody, there's just like trash everywhere. People picking up shit. So finally, uh, we actually like, we crawled down you know, like backwards, you know, on the steps, you know, like crawled right. down backwards until we got to like the, uh, you know, like one of the main floors, you know, and then, then we could walk out. But yeah, that was crazy. That's the most acid I ever took at one time. And um, like, I can only say, I, I remember it, but I mean, it was, um, I mean, I think I had a good time, even though like I missed a show and I was like scared to walk out because it was like a ledge, man. It was like crazy. I still, to this day, I have like vivid memories of trying, like I'm telling you, probably in that however many hours, three to five hours, I probably attempted to walk down those steps like 20 or 25 times, me and my buddy. And I just, I couldn't do it. It was not happening until finally like, and you know, acid lasts a long time too. So, you know, I was still tripping. It was just like, they were going to lock the door and I didn't want to get fucking, you know, right. locked in the fucking stadium. Um, so, so I mean, how, so it, it, at some point though, like you started, I mean, you know, you, you kind of started selling more and more, you're making money at it. You're, you know, yeah, really. I kind of, my business kind of exploded when everybody started going to college. Right. So, you know, first I'm like a sophomore and then I'm getting more into it when I'm a junior. And, you know, like I say, I'm, I'm selling to the sophomores and I'm selling to the seniors, you know, and I was kind of like that guy. I was kind of like that yeah, yeah. dude in high school. Like if you wanted weed, if you wanted LSD, I was like the dude. And I don't care. I would sell like 10 sheets. I would sell multiple sheets. I would sell like five or 10 hits, you know, because I was like, whatever. It was all money to me. Plus, I always felt, you know, I always felt like I was feeling a need, you know, because I felt like people wanted good, clean drugs, you know, and I always felt like, you know, weed and LSD, you know, and, and mushrooms and stuff like that. I always felt they were good drugs. I didn't feel like they were bad drugs. You know, I didn't carry a gun. I didn't have a criminal organization. You know what I'm saying? I go around, beat people up. You know, a lot of times people paid cash. A lot of people times people fronted, I fronted stuff to people. A lot of times people that I fronted stuff to were my friends and they fucked up the money and I still didn't do it. I was like, well, whatever, I can make more money. Right. That was always kind of like my attitude. So, um, you were saying you didn't, you didn't really feel like it should be illegal anyway. I mean, it's yeah, like, that was, yeah, I always tell, I tell people to this day, this is my big thing, right? I was never a criminal, right? I broke laws that I thought were wrong. Right. 
You know, I was an outlaw. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, like I say, to me, there's a difference. You know, I mean, in prison, you got criminals and you got outlaws, you know, and maybe to the government and law enforcement, it's all the same because, you know, we're breaking the laws of society. But I mean, there's a difference. Anybody, I mean, you know, you've been in prison, man. There's a difference. You know, a lot of times a criminal is going to do whatever he can. You know, criminal like fuck you over for a dollar. Right. You know, where like an outlaw has like morals. You know, some kind of code that he's trying to live by. Yeah, so, you know, th- there's a big difference. But, um, yeah, so I probably really exploded, like, probably, like, around 89, you know, when I was a senior. So um, a lot of my friends had went off to colleges, you know, and were, like, freshmen. And, and so I went to Robinson, and Robinson was a big school in, in Fairfax County. So Robinson was probably, like, 4,000 people. And then we had a sister school that was, like, not even five miles away called Lake Braddock. And Lake Braddock would have like 4,000 kids. And so, you know, for two years, you know, going on three years, I had been selling, you know, drugs, you know, LSD and, and, and uh, weed to all these people in these schools, you know, going all the part. And, you know, like I say, everybody smoked weed back then. It didn't matter, you know, if you were a jock, you know, if you were a stoner, you know, if you like we called them truckers, like the dudes with the big four by fours. Right. You know, if you, you know, some Virginia, you got like the more country dudes, you know, so then, you know, the cheerleaders, you know, the popular kids, everybody smoked weed. Everybody did LSD. Everybody did mushrooms. You know, some of them did coke, but, you know, I didn't, I didn't really fuck with those people. That wasn't really my scene. So when these people started going to colleges, like, and these are all good kids from, from good families, you know, not necessarily like super rich, you know, some more rich than others, but all upper middle class, you know, like all these kids, like they got a Mustang, Mustang or like a hand-me-down Beamer or Mercedes when they were 16, right? you know, and, um, you know, so, so when they all went off, they, they went to all these colleges, you know, like, like Penn State, you know, University of Maryland, you know, um, you know, Kentucky University, UK, you know, West Virginia University, you know, all the way like Virginia Tech, right? you know, Radford, uh, you know, VCU, you know, all the Virginia schools. So I just had like all these friends that went to all these different colleges and all within, you know, pretty much neighboring states to Virginia. So but when they, they, still, all, they still need drugs yeah so they're going and i mean you want to go because like when you're a senior you want to go to the colleges anyhow because you want to party you know check out the girls and see what college is like because i mean that's what it's about in the suburbs you know you go to school and then you know you go to college and it's like a party so um like they're calling me up there you know and and i'm going and they want me to bring drugs they're like hey dude what can you bring whatever they're like i need this for me and like my whole frat everybody needs shit so i started going and it just like turned in it was like just this little kind of local thing, you know, where I was kind of like, you know, a retail dude, but not really a big wholesale. I did maybe a little wholesale, but that was like real small part of my market. It was mostly retail, right? you know, hand to hand stuff. And it just turned into where, you know, I remember the first time I, I went to Radford, right? I went to Radford in uh, the beginning of the semester. So late August, 1990. And, uh, Radford is like kind of like the uh, sister school to Virginia Tech. Radford used to be like an all-girls school, but then, you know, then they changed it so guys could come. And um, and Virginia Tech is like right there, too. So it's these two, you know, Virginia Tech is a really huge school, but Radford's a pretty big school. So like August 1990, I, I, go to, I go to Radford, and I had just picked up some bud that they just harvested in Kentucky. 
And back then, like sometimes like in the summer, like it would get dry, man. Like you couldn't find any weed. And if you did find weed, it would be like brown, you know, garbage brick weed with seeds. So I, w- I was always known for getting the good bud from like Kentucky or Northern California. So this time I brought, I brought like a ton of, uh, not a ton, but probably like 20 pounds, you know, just harvested fresh, you know, good green bud. And, um, I actually go, I go to my dude's house, right? And my dude has a house and it's, it's kind of like a little, you know, duplex apartment thing. So like he has a house right here and then his buddy has a house right here. And so I bring Bud and he's like, man, he's like, man, nobody has Bud. He's like, everybody wants Bud. I'm like, well, fucking call him, dude. I'm like, we're, we're here. So we break out the fucking triple beam. Right. And first I'm like in his room and like people are coming, but you know, it was like so many fucking people, like it was like crazy. So what we ended up doing is we w- ended up going to his friend's apartment, which was like kind of connecting, you know, across the way. And we had that door and we put like a table in front of the door, like we're a fucking vendor. And me and this other dude, you know, my road partner, we're basically weighing stuff out. And there was like a line. So there was like a line all through this walkway and all through my friend's house because they would come in my friend's house the front door and then, you know, come out in this side door and we'd go and it was like a line, dude. And we like literally quartered ounced up weed for probably like three hours straight, you know, and I would like literally like sitting at the table, throwing fucking money in the back. Like, I don't even know how, how much money, I don't even know how much weed I'm selling, but you know, at the end, I mean, we still had some left. I probably had about five or six pounds left, but I, I literally probably sold 14, 15 pounds in three hours all for like quarters and ounces. And I just have like this big duffel bag of money, you know, and that, that was just like, that's like what it was back then. And I did that. And once I did that first, I was like, man, I was like, I can make a lot of money doing this. You know, that was my first thought. But second, I was like, man, I got to find a better fucking process. Cause this right. is like some bullshit. Cause it's, yeah. you know, I mean, back then it was marijuana, you know, the war on drugs and all that shit. I was like, man, this is like, this is like too open, you know? So, what I did among the people I knew at the different colleges, you know, cause I had some situations at other colleges like that, you know, that was the, the most extreme situation. Right. That's why I'm telling the story, but you know, I had different situations like that. It paints like a that. good scene though. Yeah. So, um, I, I just started finding dudes, like some of my friends, you know, like the, the smartest, most trustworthy or on point friends. And I would just go to them and I say, look, dude, check this out. I'm going to come in. I'm going to drop you like 20 sheets of acid. I'm going to drop you like five pounds of bud. And then, you know, you can do all the hand to hand sales and you know, this is how much you owe me and then I'll come back and get it. So I did that at all these different colleges. So I started doing this loop, you know, where I would go down, I would go down 81 in Virginia and and hit all the Virginia colleges. Then, then I'll come back through Kentucky. I would go to Eastern, Eastern Kentucky. And then I would go up to UK. Then I would come back to West Virginia, West Virginia university, which West Virginia University in Morgantown was like my hugest market, man. That place, at that time in, in, in the late 80s, like West Virginia, like in, in Playboy magazine, like West Virginia University was always like in the top five party colleges. You know, like, like it was just fucking crazy. It was just known, right. you know what I'm saying? They always had like a big football program. You know, they were always kind of big in football, but uh, they were just known. It was known as like a super party college. So, um, and I, I had, I had my buddies were in the Delta Tau Delta fraternity and they had this big fucking huge old dilapidated mansion, like on frat row. And they just used to have these big ass fucking parties. So they used to have these, these, uh, they used to have this party. It was called the, uh, 
man, it was called like the, it was called like the, the backyard, not the backyard brawl, but it was called like the backyard something. I can't think of the, the, the second name, but so it was called like the, the backyard brawl or backyard bash or something, whatever. That's yeah. it. Backyard bash. Okay. Right. You got the word. So it was called the backyard bash. So they would have this party and there'd be like literally 5,000 kids and they would always have it right in the beginning of the semester. And there would literally be 5,000 kids like going through this old dilapidated mansion. And then they had like this big, you know, backyard and parking spot and they would get like reggae bands and stuff like that. And so I would go to there and, you know, at first, like it would be like, I would be selling hand to hand. Eventually I got one of my dues to do everything, but, uh, like their parties were so big that eventually, uh, West Virginia university, like told them they couldn't have the backyard bash anymore. They were like, you guys, that party's outlawed. You can't have it. So like, you know what these dudes did, right? Cause these are like some little, you know, little smart, you know, also entitled rich right. kids. They were like, okay. So they called it the Ackyard Ash, you bring the bees. Okay. So they just changed the name like that and still had the same fucking party. You know, they were basically like, fuck the university. But um, that's what I did. I, I cultivated these relationships. I kind of made f- friends of mine that were drug users, you know, partiers into drug dealers. And um, so you now you're just the distributor. Yeah. So this started like 89. So then by the time like 91, when I'm really rolling, uh, I'm basically supplying like 15 colleges in five states with uh, weed and LSD. Okay. So that's a full-time job. No, definitely. Like I say, at this time too, like I didn't work a job because that was my job, but I I'd actually went to college a couple times, just like, you know, the local community college, but it was always like, I even... I came down to Florida, dude. I came down to Florida in 89, in the fall of 89. And um, I was enrolled at, uh, what's it called? The uh, USF. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was enrolled. I my yeah. Degree. yeah, I was enrolled in USF, right? In, in the fall of 89. But it, I mean, it didn't last because uh, I was like, I was just drawn. You know, I was drawn to like the dead shows. I was drawn to the dead scene. You know, I was drawn to the... Uh, you know, just like to me, because to me, being that drug dealer, it was it was like being a rock star. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And it wasn't even the money. It was a lifestyle. And not to say, I mean. No, you're the guy calling the shots. Everybody's like, hey, they, well, they need something for from you. And you're they're, they're, They treat you with respect. And, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I know. It's, and then and then, too, it's like uh, just the, the chicks do because like like I would have like I had like multiple girlfriends just like at colleges. I would have like different chicks like I would like if they were in the dorms, I would move them out, get them an apartment just so I had like a, a safe place to lay my head and I would pay like their apartments. So, like I said, I was making a lot of money for a teenager. Right. I mean, I, I always tell people like I was making like 20, 20, 30,000 a month, right. like not generating, like I was making profit. I mean, generating, I was probably, you know, generating like, you know, a couple hundred thousand a month, right. you know, but I was literally making, you know, 25, 30 grand a month. I mean, 20 grand, 30 grand a month is a lot of money for a grown adult uh, you, raising a family. That's a, that's a ton of money for, yeah. for a kid. That's and this was like, this was like, you know, eight, nine, 89, 90, but really I, I always tell people too, cause you know. I, I sold drugs, so, so probably from like, whatever, 16 to I got busted at 20, so four years. But it was really only like nine months where I was at that height. So it was right. that last nine months, like 90, you know, into when I caught my case, uh, you know, the fall of 91. 
So, you know, cause, cause before like everything I'll explain, this is when I'm like putting everything together, you know, I'm getting all my, my sources and my contacts straight. You know, I, I got it eventually. Like I didn't even have to go on tour to get the acid because I developed where they would just, they would send me, they would send me like a hundred sheets, 10,000 hits. And I was basically getting like a hundred, a hundred thousand hits a month, you know, sent to me. And then for the weed, you know, I would get in the fall to about January, I would get weed sent from, uh, you know, San Francisco from like Northern California, you know, Emerald Triangle bud. And I would drive down to Kentucky myself and, and get their bud, you know, which was that they grew domestically, which was pretty good. It wasn't as good as a Humboldt bud, but you know, it was close. And then the rest of the year from January until like August, I would basically get the, the brick pot, the Mexican brick pot. And, um, I even dude, I used to get a lot of weed out of Fort Myers. I would drive down to Fort Myers, Florida. You know, I used to, I used to go to Dallas, Texas. I'd fly to Dallas, Texas, but I would drive down to Fort Myers, Florida, and I would get weed from, actually, it was like Kentucky dudes that were getting the weed down here. Like, so they'd grow the weed, you know, all year in the fall, and then in the winter, you know, sometimes they would come down here, you know, to kind of keep the business going. So I'd go down to Fort Myers, and I wasn't picking up a lot, man. And, you know, i pick up, like, whatever, 50 pounds, 100 pounds of brick pot, which when it's all compressed like that, you know, it's not that much. And also what I was doing was... uh I was flying down to Dallas and I would, I would bring money and I would, I would get like 50 pounds or something, 40, 50 pounds. And I would actually pack it in a suitcase and I would check it and I would, and I would fly back with it. You know, like I was, I was doing that like when I was 17. So that was crazy. Cause back then, you know, back then you didn't, you could go right to the airport. Right. And you could say like, you could buy a ticket. You could say like, my name is Joe Smith. Right. And you could pay him cash. For a one-way ticket, you know, and no I go no no red flags, no nothing, and I go down with it like I had a, this green, big green 1970s Samsonite, uh, you know, suitcase, you know, huge, huge, probably like you know this big, right. and I fly down, I check it, it was empty, you know what I'm saying, and I go down and I literally sit at my buddies down there because I, I had some buddies that went to University of Texas at Arlington, so I and they had developed some Mexican contacts down there, so I would lit- literally go down there sit and wait on the Mexican dudes, you know, until, until they had their shit ready. I dealt with this one dude named Mexican Eddie and, um, I would literally get the weed, buy it, pack it back in the suitcase. You know, I'd wrap it and stuff like that. And then I would check it, check it in my luggage. I'd go back, buy a one-way ticket, cash. This time I might be Chris Smith. Right. And go to, uh, you know, Dallas or, uh, you know, DC national airport and go pick it up off the carousel. So, you know, I, I didn't do that a lot, but I, I probably did that probably like, I don't know, 15 times over the years, you know, but mostly I was, I was a smuggler, you know, I, I was driver, I was a driver. That's what I would did. I, Cause I knew I figured out at a very early age, if you buy a product or, you know, drug like weed or, or LSD in one point, you know, and brought it to another point, I, you know, that's how you made money. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you could leave that on the table. You don't have to. It's not a big deal. All right. Um, I mean, this is pretty casual. I'm just like, uh, you know, I'm a director, so I'm I like, know. I'm like anal with get get everything <laughs> yeah. out of the fucking shot. I was thinking of the the Fort Myers thing. I wrote a story about these two guys that ran basically like it was one of the largest um, uh, largest bust in that area um, from the DEA. I think they got caught with like. 
1200 pounds or something. I was just like, you know, and to just get, to get seized, to get caught with 1200 pounds, God only knows what, you know, if that's just the one thing they caught you with. Yeah. That's just the one shipment. They got. Yeah. But that was Fort Myers. Fort Myers is a big, you know, it's big for marijuana for bringing in marijuana. Plus what, what was the other guy's name that we did? Cowboy. Uh, the, 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 um, the saltwater, ca- saltwater cowboy, yeah, he, but he. Oh, was, Tim McBride. Yeah, yeah, Tim yeah, McBride. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. off. Uh, yeah, he was in the Keys. He was yeah, in the yeah. Keys. Oh, that dude was a huge fucking yeah. marijuana smuggler. Yeah, he's, uh, he's, 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 boy, he's an interesting character too. Mm. Um, See, that's that's why I always look like. I'm not saying for a teenager, I, w- I was a big drug dealer for a teenager, but like when I really look at it, like after after doing all that time in the feds and stuff like that, like I look at it. I mean, I was a small, I was a small timer. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, you know, for, for a kid, yeah, I mean, and who knows if I didn't get busted, maybe I would have got bigger, you know, you never know. But, you know, once I got in the feds and even like dude like like Tim, like, I mean, those dudes were just, right. I mean, they're bringing in fucking tons. So, yeah. I mean, we got an organization or a crew that's bringing in tons. I mean, really what I was doing, I mean, I'm like a minnow, you know right. what I'm saying? Yeah, but it's it's hard to, you know, it's, you know, you get in front of the judge and you could. You know, they, they make oh, they don't give fucking, a fuck. They, they make you sound act like, like a, I was fucking John Gotti or Pablo Escobar of the fucking suburbs of the fucking feds. Every, every fucking new case is public enemy number one. Yeah, absolutely. I always love that, that these guys get in front of the judge and they make them sound like just the most dangerous criminal in, in the world. And then they send them to a low. Yeah. Or they send him to a camp. Uh, like, yeah. if, if I'm so dangerous, how did you? How did I go directly to a camp? No, it's fucking, it's fucking crazy, man. That's that's our our criminal justice system, man. It's the, it's, it's they got all their priorities wrong. But so, um, so yeah, what what? Sorry. Yeah, definitely. Um, like I said, I I had like nine months where where I was rolling, where like, like I was like. I mean, I was probably the man, but, you know, like, I really was really feeling myself. Like, I thought I was a man. You know, where it was where, like, I had built everything up over a couple years. And, you know, even, too, like, like as a kid, you know, I mean, teenagers, I mean, you second-guess yourself. You know, you're insecure, you know. So I, I was doing this for several years, and, you know, maybe I still didn't feel how I wanted to feel. And then, like, dude, I had, like, that nine, that last nine months before I got busted. Like, I, I was on top of the world. Like, I, I could literally, I felt like, do anything I wanted. I had enough money. You know, one time right before I got busted, dude, like, I went to Hawaii. I just went to Hawaii for two fucking months, dude. I was like, man, fuck it. You know, I was like, I'm going to get the fuck out of here. So I, I put a couple dudes, you know, that actually they ended up on my case and they, they ended up telling on me. But I, I put them. I said, OK, you're in charge of weed. You're in charge of the LSD. Right. I'm just going to go to fucking, you know, just fucking stack my money. I'm going to go to fucking Hawaii for fucking two months and just chill out, you know. But uh, yeah. And then, like I say, I, you know, I had a bunch of different girlfriends, but I was always the type of dude to usually like. I would have like runs with girls, you know, I would have like six to, like I would always have a main girl where I had like a six to nine month run with her and she'd be like my girl, even though I might've had, you know, other girls that I just saw every now and then, right. you know, but that was kind of like, you know, there's some 80s stuff. I don't know. Maybe people would look down on that today. Right. I, I don't. A, it's um, a more, it's a more sensitive world today. So, so what, what was the, like, what was the, the catalyst that brought it all down that, yeah, so basically, um, I mean, looking back, I mean, at the time, I thought it was like a real bright idea, but looking back, it was probably pretty stupid. So, uh, you know, the summer 91, usually like in the summer, it would get dry. There's no weed, right? So before I, I took that trip to Hawaii, 
you know, in this, in the spring of 91, you know, I set shit up cause I was always gearing up for the fall. Cause with the fall was when I could really make money. So I needed to like get my money up for the fall. So when they harvested in Northern California and Kentucky, so I could buy up a lot of bud cause you want to buy up in the harvest. You want to buy up of the bud early. Like you want to buy when the farmers are hurting like late August, September, you know, cause you can get shit for cheaper. Right. You know what I'm saying? Then by like October, November, by January. So it's like the weed you can get for 1600 in September. By January, that weed might be like 3000 Right. You know, so that was always my, my thing because, you know, I was trying to maximize my profits. So I had this bright idea in the spring of 91 when all my friends were going to be home from school, you know, because school was over. I was like, you know what? I was like, I'm going to fucking sell as much acid as I can this summer so I can get my money up for the fall. You know, and plus, like I say, that nine months I was making money, but I was probably spending money recklessly because when you got money coming in that young, you know, like water, I mean, it was just going out the door like water. I, I didn't give a fuck. I was just like fucking spend money on anything. I didn't give a fuck. I was, I was really, I was dumb. I was the type of kid, and I'm sure, you know, you might have known kids like this, but I was a kid that I would buy like some expensive polo t-shirts or whatever, and I would wear that shit one time right? and I would give it away. Cause I was like, I only wear new shirts. That was like my thing. Like I only wear new shirts. I don't wear fucking old shirts. I don't wash my shit. You know, yeah. like I'm saying. So, you know, I'm, I mean, I had some shit that I probably wash, you know, right. not, you know, keep it real or whatever. But no. you know, that was, that was like my thing. You know, I'm not going to front like every fucking shirt I had was like brand new, but I, that was like, that was like one of my things. And also another one of my things was, uh, sneakers, man. I was a fucking, Sneakerhead, you know, so the Air Jordans has started coming out like probably, probably like 85, 86. So, you know, by like you're talking like 90, 91, there's like a fucking shitload of Air Jordans and a shitload, you know, everybody else jumped on the sneakers. So, like, I literally had like hundreds and hundreds of pairs of fucking high tops. Yeah, that sounds like Bozy. Uh, he, yeah. like, he had, he, he had like a, a storage unit filled with two, three hundred pairs of, uh, of sneakers. It was just like he had a wall like in his room that was just sneakers. I was like, no. are you wearing all the sneakers? He's like, no, I never wear them. I just had I'm them. Like, I just why? like to go buy them. Yeah, he, yeah, he yeah. said, he said, I cool. just like, I just like to spend the money, dude. To me, it was like, just go and spend it. And I always, I always had this thing like, just spending cash, dude. I just love to spend cash, you know, because everybody else is like credit cards. Like, right. I just used to, like, dude, like literally. And, and not like I'm spending over $10,000 or whatever because they still had that $10,000 thing back then. But, you know, I just used to love to go to, like, stores or go to the mall and just fucking drop, like, five or six grand. You know, and I would buy mostly myself, but sometimes it might be girls. I might bring some guys to my crew. I'd buy them shit, too. And I would just go on these fucking whatever, whatever I had, a five, six, seven, eight, and I would just fucking drop that shit in the fucking mall in a day. But so I'm, I'm fucking... You know, doing all went off on a tangent again, but you know. right. yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm trying to get my money up because I was fucking spinning reckless, like how I just described. And so I just had this fucking awesome idea. I'm like, fuck, because I knew it's going to be dry. I knew there's going to be no weed. I'm like, you know what? I'm like, I'm just going to fucking pump out as much fucking acid as I can in the summer of 91. And I'm going to make as much money as I can. So I got my money stacked for the fall so I can fucking make a killing. Cause I know the falls is, is when I'm really going to make the killing every fall. That's when I made a lot of money. So, um, all my friends are back from the colleges, so they don't have the whole college to sell to. It's just all my fucking high school friends from these two high schools, Robinson and Lake Braddock. And so dude, so literally acid is going for like five, $6 a hit. 
I flooded the areas with so much fucking acid. Like usually I, I would do like, uh, you know, 10,000 hits a month, but that's like all the colleges. Right. So now I'm fucking, I'm like, fucking, I'm, I'm going to get like 150 sheets. I'm going to get like 15,000, 20,000 hits and I'm going to flood it all. All my people are in Fairfax County. You know, there's no colleges. So I actually, the price of acid that summer went from like five, $6 a hit down to like one to $2 a hit. Cause I flooded it so much, you know, like, you yeah. know, I mean, looking back, I was a fucking dumbass, you know, cut my own throat, but whatever, you know, at the time I thought I was fucking brilliant. I was like, yeah. So, um, not only did I flood the area, but it was just, I mean, there's fucking acid. There's just, everybody's just tripping all fucking summer. And eventually you, what happened is, uh, there was this kid, uh, I mean, I never met the kid, but he was like a little 15-year-old kid. He was at this big field party in Clifton. You know, Clifton was like the kind of rich, real ritzy area in Fairfax County where they had like the million-dollar houses and they would have like these big, you know, five, six-acre lots. So the kids that lived there, when their parents, you know, just like when any parents would, you know, go on vacation, you know, they would throw parties, except they would throw like these big field parties, you know, and people, people would bring like stages for bands or they might bring like fucking, uh, skateboard ramps and all types of shit. So it'd be like this fucking crazy fucking scene. And so there was this big party, but eventually like all parties out in the suburbs, you know, eventually the cops are called. So, um, this one kid was tripping balls on acid and the cops came and somehow he was running through the woods naked and um, like a cop ch was chasing him, you know, right. and the cop like tackled him. And for some reason, this kid grabbed the cop's, you Gun. know, service oh, yeah. revolver and, uh, you know, luckily only shot him in the arm. Right. You know, so, I mean, whatever, flesh wound, but, I, you know, I'm sure it was painful or whatever. I don't know if he hit the bone. I don't know all the exact details, but I know he shot him in the arm. And um, so once this happened, you know, and then that kid, like, you know, whatever, he said, yeah, he was blamed on the acid. Of course. Told him where he got the acid from. And, um, which he could have been drunk and the same fucking thing would have happened. And who knows? Yeah, that, I mean, know. I always say, look, if it's in you, it's in you. Yeah, the, yeah. the drug is not going to bring it out. Right. You know? Just, just like in prison, like we, you know, when they talk about dudes do homosexual shit, if it's in you, it was yeah. in you before, you know, in oh, yeah, yeah. Well, multiple just, ways it was yeah. in you. I was just, well, it's <laughs> just when I'm in prison, <laughs> bro. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but, uh, so, so this, this happens and actually the dude that sold him the acid was actually, I knew him personally because at one time I had sold, he went to Lake Braddock. I had sold to him, you know, for probably like, you know, my first two years. Yeah. But by this time, like there's like seven people between me and him. Cause you know, he was a cool dude, but he was like this metal dude. He actually ended up on my case, but, uh, you know, he was, a, he was this metal dude. And I did, I just thought, like the way he sold drugs, he would just sell to anybody, you know, so I didn't, you know, so there was like seven people separated, you know, between me and him, but it was still all my shit. So, um, this kid said he got it from this guy. His name was Dave, the metal guy. And, um, yeah. And they started an investigation, man. And, um, really it was like, you know, and this, this is how law enforcement in this country reacts too. like, if you do something to law enforcement, like you, if you shoot a cop or something like they go hard, man, yeah. they don't fuck around. Like, no, they take you know, it seriously now. Yeah, they're like, man, 
you know, like you touched one of ours, you know, they're like, I mean, they're like a gang, like any fucking gang mm-hmm. or the mafia, you know, you, you know, just like the criminals, you touch one of theirs, they're going to go hard. The fucking cops go harder than everybody. So, um, they basically had like a witch hunt that summer, man. It was like an LSD witch hunt. Cause so the dominoes start just pop, 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 pop. Yeah. Right, they were right trying to, to find, yeah. Like where the fuck is this shit coming from? And also like everybody knew my name. Everybody knew Seth. Right. Because, you know, now Seth is more common because you got like Seth Rogan or, you know, Seth McFarlane. So there's like some famous people named Seth. But back then, like, dude, like 91, like nobody was fucking named Seth. Right. You know what I'm saying? So like my name stuck out. So everybody, you know, everybody's Seth, Seth. So they keep hearing Seth, Seth, Seth. They don't know my last name or anything, but everybody's hearing Seth. So because I I was kind of like this, uh, whatever, this infamous, you know, uh, you know, myth. You know, I don't know if you want to say legend or whatever. You know, I, I was just a dude that supplied all the fucking drugs to all these colleges. So, you know, a lot of people knew who I was. I'm sure you know? Colby will use a, a legend in the in the clickbait title he'll come up with. Yeah. It'll be legend. Yeah, you I mean, a lot, of, a lot of people. The you infamous know. legend. Yeah. Seth. You know, but it's underground, you know, underground legends. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, I'm not, like, I'm not mainstream celebrity or nothing. You know, I was always, I've always been more notorious and infamous. So, um... They start hearing my name and then they got this guy, Dave Crago, you know, so like during their investigation. So he ends up actually setting up another friend of mine, this guy named Chris, that was actually getting shit right from me. You know, he set him up in a, a you know, a deal with like a DEA, like a narc. And um, then it was like that was like the state case. And then. They pulled me into the state case. Right. Like they try to set up a deal like the cop got a certain amount, like 10 sheets, but he wanted 20 more and he wouldn't give the money, you know, until he got these other sheets. And, and like the dude, Dave, I mean, whatever. I mean, he, he was an informant, but I mean, he was basically a pussy dude. And then the other dude, Chris, I mean, he was like, you know, a lot of the dudes, I mean, they're just like, I was always a dude, like if there was a problem, like I was a dude that they would call. Right. You know what I'm saying? Because whatever, I, I not to say I'm not a tough guy, but you know, I mean, I'll fight. I don't, whatever. You know, I've but these are fights. all middle class, soft white kids. Yeah. Right? So, uh, so basically, like, it's not even my deal, but they call me to come handle it because the dude's Chris. He's like, man, I got this problem. Whatever. So, I fucking roll down there with like a couple other dudes, and I don't even know. It's it's a fucking sting. It's like a sting that they set for Chris Miller. They didn't even set the sting for me, but fucking. Chris fucking calls me and I get drawn into the fucking sting. So boom. And then they're like, Oh, we got fucking Seth. Right. You know, like who, yeah, they were trying to get to you. They, they, but they had no idea. It's just, it was like a fluke thing, you know? And, um, and like I say, still, I didn't give anybody any drugs and I didn't take any money. That doesn't matter. You know? Yeah. Cause that, that's at the time though. I thought I was, I was like, you know, so look, so it's state. So I get arrested on state. And so they, they take me back to the station and fucking like the DE agents there. And they're like, oh, blah. I'm like, man, I don't got nothing to say to you, man. I'm like, man, fuck you. Talk to my lawyer. And they're like, well, your lawyer's going to want to suck our dick. You don't know how much trouble you're in, blah, blah, blah. You know, we know everything's coming from you, blah, blah, blah. And then, then another fucked up thing happened because uh, I had this one kid was holding like 120 sheets for me. And so they found out about, about him through Chris. 
And um, so then they go right and they get that, right? And then I'm like, oh, fuck. So then they got all my fucking product too. So now, because before they had like, they had like 10 sheets. All right. You know, it would have been a state. Then they go and seize you. These guys give them the information. They go and get another 120 sheets. So now they got like 130 fucking sheets. So now they're fucking, it was like the biggest LSD bust in Fairfax County ever. Right. You know? So, uh yeah, and so then it's state, you know, whatever. I get my parents bail me out, and um, the feds come in at that time. Yeah, the feds. So this is like this is like early July, and um, you know, yeah, I people hire. Won't, people don't realize that, you know, like the, the the state will grab you for something, and then sometimes they don't have enough to prosecute you, so they'll give it to the feds because the feds have even a lower bar yeah, as the far as prosecution. Right, right, and then even even then, you can sit there and think. Oh, they don't have anything. They never. They don't have me on tape. They don't have me on this. They don't have me on that. They don't have any product that, that I got. So they got nothing yeah. except because that's what, what that's what I was is, thinking. That's right, what but what I was ends thinking. up happening in the feds is doesn't matter. They'll it's put just four, what people say. Right. They'll put four people on the stand that say they they bought from you and you're done. It's over. Yeah. You're like they got no money. They got no tapes. They got nothing on me. They got happened to have four guys that say I did it. Boom. You're looking at thirty years. Yeah. Because so I was thinking at that time because I was even like. I was like, boom, I didn't, I didn't sell any cop anything. Right. I didn't take any money from any cop. You know, I got, I got hooked into the sting or whatever, and I got arrested, but I didn't sell anybody anything. And then the, even the other 120 sheets, it was, I mean, it was mine, but it was at somebody else's house. Right. You were watching too much Law & Order. None you know what matters. I'm saying? So I, I was like, man, I'm, I'm like, I'm good. So, uh, you know, I hire a state lawyer, you know, whatever, paid him with like, I paid him like 10 grand cash, drug money. And he even, the stupid lawyer even asked me, you know, his name was uh, Michael Rieger. And uh, he was like, I hope this is not drug money. <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck? I was like, dude, I'm fucking like, I'm like fucking 20. I just gave you 10 grand cash, dude. Yeah. And you're like, I hope this is a drug. And I was arrested for the biggest LSD bust in fucking right. Fairfax County. No, that's my part-time. I've been saving that on my part-time job just to give to you. Yeah. And I just came in. I'm like, boom, here, 10 grand, dude. Like, I walked right into his office. It was in an envelope, and he was like... I mean, it was... It's just, like, so comical, these dudes, like, to save their ass, like, the shit they'll say. I'm like, yeah, dude, where do you think it's from, man? You know? Like, I didn't even lie to the dude. I didn't even try to lie. I just looked at him like, come on, dude. Are you serious? So, uh, so I got the state case. But, like, they're investigating the whole time. So, like, as soon as I get the state case, dude, it's like, it's like nobody wants to talk to me because the fucking DEA is going around talking to everybody. So, right. it's like, so I got, until I got, you know, uh, the federal case, it's, it's about maybe like a month and a half, dude. And it was, like, crazy because, like, I don't know who I can talk to. And, like, also, I have, like, a load of weed at this time. I'm trying to fucking move. I'm trying to get more money, Right. I had, I didn't have that much, but I probably had about 40 pounds. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, fuck dude. Cause like, it's like every other day it's like, cause I could tell, like I'm calling people, what is it? Some dudes owe me money and like dudes are just like dodging me. Like they don't want to talk to me. And cause it, you know, back then I, I knew anyhow, like when somebody gets busted, it's like they're hot. Yeah. Yeah. They're, so yeah. nobody wants to fuck with them, but see, so it was that, but at the same time it was the investigation behind the scenes and the DEA. So I don't know who's giving information, who's not giving information. You know, they're like going to the chicks. They're going to like people's girlfriends. They're going to like my girlfriends. They're going to fucking everybody. The feds don't fuck around. And they're going to all these little fucking rich kids. And they're threatening, like, give information on Seth or you're going to jail for 10 to life. So, you know, like I say, I, I, for a long time, I had, I had a big thing when I was first locked up where I was like, oh, fuck snitches, all this. But, you know, whatever. I mean, what did I expect them to do? It was my fault for putting those people in that position. 
You know, that's how I look at it now. Right. But uh, that's actually how I look at it. Actually, when I hit the halfway house, I actually called like five of my co-defendants that all cooperated against me and apologized for putting them in a position where they had to. I said, because the truth is I was smarter than that and I knew better than to put you in that position. And, you know, the idea that they were going to hold up was insane. That's comical. It's, I mean, they got the fucking, the fucking mafioso killers. They don't even fucking hold it. Right. That, that whole thing, like, I'm, I'm not saying, I, I know some super thorough dudes that I was in prison with, and I know some super thorough dudes that, like, you know, were in Pelican Bay and walk, like, level four yards, and, like, still to this day, they're, like, fucking... Yeah, snitches like, and fuck them guys, and I, they would never... But I, I always but, tell them, I'm like, dude, if and, you're in the life, if you're in the life or you're in prison and you want to hold those values and that attitude, cool. But dude, if you're like, you're trying to live a normal life, you know, and like, and there's still some of my buddies that are like, I can, I can walk, I can walk in the U S I'm like, okay, dude, whatever well, that is. Well, is that going to help you out here? I was going to say, don't commit crimes <laughs> and, and you know, yeah, then you get to do 30 years. Yeah. Fuck. No, that. I see, I, I see like my whole mindset, you know, life is about change. Life is, life is about evolving. So I see, you know, I put people in bad positions and whatever they did, what they were going to do anyhow. So, you know, but, um, yeah, so I'm having like this month and a half thing where like then my lawyer, he's like, oh, it's going federal. So we got to hire a federal lawyer. <laughs> so then I had to go get like five more grand and pay this federal lawyer five Only grand. five grand? That at, you first, got- at first, okay. at first, at first. Okay. So just that, that was like just the retainer. So uh, paid him cash. He didn't even ask me if it was drug money. He just took it. Right. <laughs> you know, he just took it. He was like just happy, I guess, to get it. So... um yeah, so then this fucking shit goes federal, right? And I'm just like, fuck, man. So then I got to go through the whole fucking arrest process, get bailed out, all that fucking shit again. And um, and still at this time, I, I'm not really sure like what I'm really looking at because I'm not really, I'm not like up on the mandatory minimums. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm not up on the federal you, sentencing you guidelines. You don't have any idea. Like, are you thinking three years, five years? Are you? What are you hearing? I mean, you're hearing. Yeah, anything? I'm thinking maybe like I'm thinking like maybe three to five years. Even the fucking federal lawyer I, I hired, right? He's telling me, he's like, "Oh, you're a good kid from a good family." He's like, still, you know, he has that that '80s mentality, right? You know, like he's thinking like before they changed the laws in like '88 or whenever they went in effect, '88 yeah. or '89. So 89, he's thinking, 89. he's like, "Oh, maybe you might get like eight to ten years at the most." And so, but even I, I was like, man, fuck that. I was like, I'm not doing eight to 10 years. And, um, you know, so like I said, I basically, uh, I had, I had some product, I had money that I was trying to collect, you know, I, I, I had the weed that I was selling, you know, while all this shit is going on, you know, even though I'm having to be careful who I'm selling it with, you know, I'm trying to fuck with people that, you know, the DEA doesn't know about or that they haven't talked to or whatever. Cause you know, I did fuck with a lot of different people. So, um. I'm getting my money up, and so then uh, basically I come up with this plan, you know, like my escape plan, because I'm like, I'm like, because basically like my, my lawyers tell me, they're like, they're like you, you know, eventually, you know, once they start talking to pros- prosecutors, you know, they're like, you're looking at 20 to life. I'm like, 20 to life? I'm like, what the fuck? I'm like, are you serious? 20 to life? I, w- I was like flabbergasted, and then they were like, whoa. You know, you might get like, uh, you could probably get like whatever, like four to six years, you know, if, if you, uh, you know, bust, bring some of your contacts here, you know, like they wanted me to, they wanted me to bring some people from San Francisco, like some of my deadhead friends, you know, they want me to bring in big buys. Yeah. 
Yeah, so they wanted me to set them up, and I was like, I was like, man, I don't know about that. So um, that was like how they presented my choices. They were like, oh, you can do twenty to life, yeah, or, or you this. fucking can bust these motherfuckers, cooperate, yeah, and get less time, yeah. And I was like, or you can I'll, go to trial, lose, and definitely yeah. get life. Yeah, but but I was even like, I, I I was even fucked up. Like, you want me to cooperate, and I'm still gonna get time? Yeah, I was like, what are you fucking? Like, I mean, I thought when people cooperate, like, they get off. Like, they don't even go to prison. So they were like, no, it's not like that, whatever. So um, I formed this other plan, right? I was like, man, you know, because I was out on bail. I was like, man, I'm going to take the fuck off. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, I'm, I'm going to fucking get the fuck out of here. Fuck these motherfuckers, right? And like I say, I, I, I had some money. So, um, you know, I was always a big sports fan. Right. And, you know, back then it was all newspapers, so... Like, we would get the Washington Post every day. So when you get the Washington Post, you know, and you go, like, I would go right to the sports section. But the section right before the sports section is the metro section. And so I remember, like, you know, over the last couple of years of my teenage years, I would see, like, headlines, like, in the metro section. Like, you know, so-and-so, this person, like, commits suicide at, you know, Great Falls, you know, jumping into the Potomac River. So that kind of always stuck in my mind for some reason. So I was thinking, I was like, man... I was like, how can I just like disappear, make Seth Ferrante disappear? So there's like no Seth Ferrante, there's like no case. So I came up with this, I devised this plan. I'm like, I'm gonna fake my suicide on the banks of the Potomac at Great Falls National Park. I'm gonna make it seem like I jump in the river and the area where I was gonna jump in where everybody committed suicide, it's known as like class five rapids, you know, because the water is like crazy and there's rocks. So, you know, they got like professional kayakers go there, but you know, only like the the super most craziest professional ones. So I was like, man, I'm gonna stage my suicide of course. in this area. I'm gonna course, jump. Everybody, everybody, that's, that's the, everybody's go-to move. Yeah, okay. I'm like, I'm gonna jump in the fucking water. So, uh, I came up with all this fucking big plan. And then, too, because I had another problem, you know, because, uh, you know, my parents had put their house up for okay. bail, right? So, so then I talked to the lawyers, right? So I told the lawyers, you know, because I was like, uh, I, I didn't bring it up, but I was like, you know, I started pursuing the cooperation thing. I was like, well, what happens if I say I'm going to cooperate? They're like, will you plead guilty? And then they're going to release you on a personal recognizance bond. They released the lien against the, your parents' house, and it's no longer the collateral. And I was you. like, once they said that, I already had this suicide plan, but you know, I didn't want to. I didn't have enough money to cover, you know, because I don't. It was like I think they put up seventy five grand or something, so I didn't have enough money to cover that for my parents. So I didn't even want to fuck my parents, right? So then the lawyers, you know, when I asked them about the cooperation, and they told me about this, I was like, they said PR. I was like, PR bond. I was like, what the fuck does that mean? All right. And they're like, well, you know, they're going to release you on your own recognizance. I'm like, all I got to do is like tell them I'm going to plead guilty and I'm going to cooperate. All right. And they were like, yeah. So I was like, okay. I was like, set it up. Right. So I fucking signed the paperwork. They fucking went to the courthouse, pled guilty. They fucking cut me loose. And then they told me like, I'm going to have to do these fucking debriefings. Right. Right. But I was already planned. I already had everything planned. Like I'm, I was fucking gone. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So I went. And it did like all this fucking transpired, like from the time I signed the paperwork till when I fled. I mean, it was only fucking like a couple days, right? And uh, so I took the fuck off, right? I faked my suicide. I took off. You know, I got rid of the, rid of the rest of the weed I had and I, I took off to California. And um, like for real, dude, like I thought, I mean, because I had just went, I was like on a nine month high, like where I was on top of the world. And then like 
everything fucking crashed. So then I was like fucked up. And then like, I came up with this plan and I executed it. And then I was, I was like on top of the world. I was like, man, I was like, I'm that fucking dude. Like, fuck these motherfuckers, right? Like, you know, I felt like I got my fucking swagger back or whatever. Cause it, like when they, when I got busted and all that shit, like, dude, my fucking moxie, my swag was just like gone. I was like at the lowest point. But you, you'd also thought that you pulled off the, the faking the suicide, right? Cause didn't you, wasn't there something in the newspaper or something about you committing suicide and, yeah, like, so, so you thought you you thought it was a lock. Yeah, right? so 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 I go to LA. I fly to LA and I'm I'm actually I'm staying on uh Point Magoo military base. So I know this girl, her dad's like the XO. This uh girl named Nancy. So she was like an old girlfriend. So I went out there and I'm staying on the base and uh you know Point Magoo's a little bit up from LA, but I was having her drive me down to LA every day because you know back then they had like the big newsstands you know, like on every corner with like all the newspapers from different places and all the magazines, you know, you don't see that as much today, sometimes in the big cities, but not really with all the newspapers from the different cities. So I was going to get the Washington Post, like every couple of days, I would go to the Washington Post. So the first time I went and I saw it said, uh, you know, Fairfax LSD kingpin commit suicide. And I fucking saw, I was like, fuck yeah, I got these motherfuckers. Because I was thinking like, boom, now seven years, like Seth, note Seth Ferrante, my parents can have me declared legally dead in seven years. Right. You know what I'm saying? And no bodies found or whatever. They don't know what the fuck is up. And my body, you know, I figured my body was going to float out to the fucking Atlantic Ocean, you know? So I keep going back and I'm fucking like, I'm on top of the world again. I'm like, yeah, I'm the fucking smartest motherfucking outlaw. I can out smart the fucking feds these motherfuckers can't fuck with me and i'm like 22 so i'm like fucking you know you know when you're 20 it's all like that false bravado you think you're living in a movie or something yeah Yeah. dude like i was i like i was like like you know catch me if you can wasn't even out out then but you know i thought i was catch me if you can you know but uh you know i just didn't know the name of the title of the movie but i thought i was that dude so uh i keep going down and i'm reading the papers because i'm like you know a couple of my uh, co-defense are going to trial. You know, everybody else pleads guilty. You know, out of everybody, like two dudes ended up uh, going to trial. Everybody else, like six other dudes ended up pleading guilty. So I'm reading all this in the papers. And then it was like probably like two weeks after I go back down and um, like I'm still on my fucking high, dude. And I get the fucking paper and I open up to the metro section, dude. And I was just fucking crushed because it said... Uh, it was like fucking prosecutors declare uh, LS, Fairfax County LSD Kings pen suicide a hoax. And I saw the headline. I was like, what? Like all my planning, everything, dude. I was like, what the fuck? I'm not dead. So I start reading the article, right? And it's like they said the, the U.S. park rangers, you know, dragged the river for two weeks and they, they didn't find a body. And um, I was like reading it more. And then like it went on to say like, you know, you know, where, you know, I allegedly went in, you know, there's like a, a dam like after that. So, I mean, I was like, so fuck, you wouldn't, it wouldn't have been washed out to sea. It would have been stuck in this one area and they yeah, would have found the body. Dude, I like seriously fucked up, yeah. man. I fucking staged, <laughs> I staged weeks, my though. suicide. It was a good two weeks. Yeah. So I, I staged the suicide on the wrong side of the dam. So that's, I mean, <sighs> I had a dime. So look, I thought it was smart as fuck. And I mean, really, in a way you think, I mean, I did. I, I was real innovative and I came up with this fucking crazy idea and I almost pulled it off. Just oh. that one little well, fucking well, detail, man. Next time. Next time, you know. So that's how, uh, yeah, so that's how that whole shit transpired. So then uh, 
Then they made me for some ungodly reason. These fucking and I, and I know why now. I learned later at the time I had no fucking clue. So I learned later because when I was in prison, I did all these freedom information acts, you know, on all my case and everything. Yeah. You know, because I was a uh, you know I was a, a megalomaniac researcher like that. So you might know about stuff like that. <laughs> me too. Me too. So. Yeah. Uh, so what I pieced together after the fact, so what happened was there was this dude named uh, Henry Hudson. He was like the assistant prosecutor, like the, you know, like, not the assistant prosecutor. Yeah, he was assistant U.S. attorney yeah. named Henry Hudson, like uh, on, on my case at the time in the Eastern District of Virginia. So all of a sudden, right after my case, this dude transfers to the Eastern District U.S. Marshal's office. And he's the head of the U.S. Marshal's office. And so I guess, like, you know, he felt like I put a black mark on his record or, you know, like I made them look bad or I outsmarted them. Was he, he was your AUSA? He was your... He wasn't the prosecutor on my case. My prosecutor on my case was this shit named Christine Wright. He was like the, he was like the assistant U.S. attorney. Oh, okay. So he was like the second highest dude in the office. Sorry, never mind. Yeah, so... Uh, so she was underneath him, and your case was underneath his caseload. So. Yeah, okay. so this dude, he goes from second in charge of the U.S. Attorney's Office to US number Marshall. one guy in the U.S. Marshals in the Eastern District of Virginia. And um, this dude makes me a top 15 U.S. Marshals list, I guess, out of revenge factor, or he's pissed off, or I'm the black mark on his record, and he has higher aspirations. Right. You know, so... Um, yeah, so I mean, I had no clue. So, so, so for two years, like I'm prancing around the fucking U.S. Like, uh, eventually, I started selling weed and uh, not LSD, but I started running weed from Dallas, Texas, up to St. Louis, and I'm just like carrying on, you know, war on drugs. I'm still a drug dealer. Like, you know, really, in, in retrospect, when I look at it, I was really, really, really stupid. I mean, I'm trying to fucking be the biggest drug dealer I can as a fugitive at the height of the war on drugs. So, no. you know, but I mean, retrospect age, you get some clarity. So, uh, you know, at the time, you know, well, I got blinders on whatever. I thought I was a cool guy. So, uh, so this dude, so I'm actually U.S. Marshals fucking top 15 most wanted for fucking the whole two years. I'm a fugitive. And like, I have no fucking clue because even when I was a fugitive, like I would watch all the shows. I watch like America's Most Wanted. You're like, I'm doing research, dude. I'm like a researcher. That's what right. I do. You know, like when I do something like I research it. Right. So. I'm watching America's Most Wanted. I'm watching fucking like Unsolved Mysteries. I'm watching all that shit because I'm figuring out like how do they catch these motherfuckers? And so a lot of times like I'm seeing shit like the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. It's taking like three months to match up his prints. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm like, fuck, dude. Like I'm low profile. I don't have any murders. I'm not, I never even beat nobody up. You know what I'm saying? I'm right. like, it's going to take them forever to match up my prints because I'm, you know, I feel like I'm not a high priority. But, you know... Lo and behold, I had no fucking idea that I'm fucking a federal U.S. Marshal's top 15 most wanted fucking fugitive. So, uh, and, and like I say, this dude, Henry Hudson, he, he did the paperwork, you know, because later on when I got caught, you know, one of the U.S. Marshals told me, like, he's looking at my jacket, you know, and he's, and he's looking at me. And I look like when I got caught, I look like a little college kid. And he's like, he's like, who did you piss off? All right. You know what I'm saying? Because there's like anybody else on the top 15 most wanted list is like violent, has guns, murders, whatever. Yeah, they're dangerous fugitives and you're selling a product you can't even OD on. I'm selling fucking hippie drugs. Right. So 
whatever. So, uh, you know, but I came to find out this all later. So, you know, but that whole time, really, when I'm a fugitive, I was selling weed. Um, I was running weed. Eventually, like in L.A., my money ran out, and uh, that girl got sick of me living in her parents' house. So, you know, I had to fucking roll out. <laughs> so, uh, you know, she didn't want to. She didn't, her parents didn't know I was a fugitive, but she knew. So after about six months, she was kind of like, uh, dude, you got to like. The novelty's worn yeah. off. She was like, yeah, it was cool seeing you again and having some sex and shit. But now you got to bounce, motherfucker, because there's no, this relationship's not lasting. There's no future. You're a fucking fugitive fucking drug dealer. You know what I'm saying? At, at the height of the war on drugs, she's like, she saw no future. <laughs> but she's going to have my kids when I go to prison. I don't know. But uh, so. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of, she told me kick rocks. I go to Dallas, Texas. I hook up with Mexican Eddie. Right. You know, my fucking brick pot dealer. You, and, got, a fake, um, you got fake IDs and oh, stuff Oh, I got right tons now. of fake IDs. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. mean, that's a whole nother story. That'll take another half hour to tell about the fake right. IDs. But I got a whole fucking bunch of fake IDs that I got through researching through books. I learned how to do it. And um, I meet some guys and they're from St. Louis, you know, and I'm, I'm selling drugs, you know, weed and it in Texas at Harrigan's restaurants, these other restaurants. And one of the guys one time, he goes to St. Louis. So I'm like, can you sell some weed? And so I go up, I take 20 pounds. And like over that next year to 18 months, I make like, I have like my, my second little fucking marijuana empire. And um, then eventually uh, I get arrested for like a quarter pound of weed with the same guy who took me up there, but it was in his truck, so he claims it. He actually was selling weed for me, but it was my weed. You guys um, got pulled over or something? What? No, we were in the back of a Burger King parking lot. Oh, that's and, right. Yeah, the Burger King parking lot had just got robbed like two weeks before. I just dropped off like three pounds. We were just waiting for the money and smoking a joint. Cops pulled up. Dumb luck. And uh, I didn't even know he had the quarter pound in the truck, but you know, he did the right thing. He claimed it. He said it was his, but they still arrested me and took me in and matched my prints, you know, released me. And then I came back and bailed him out, got his car out of the impound, you know, and got my money for the three pounds. And um, yeah, but then in three days, they matched up my fucking prints. So then the fucking, the fucking Midwest fucking fugitive task force is looking for me. They go to his house first because they got his real name. He starts driving him around St. Louis to all the people I fucking sell weed to. And then eventually they found some dude that I had just fucking loaded up, threatened to give him 10 years to life, and he brought him right to my hotel. Boom. Extradited back to Virginia. Sentenced to uh, 25 years, 304 months. Did you, you didn't, I mean, you, you just pled guilty to 25 I'd years? I'd already pled. I had already pled. I oh, pled before I left. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I pled because I pled to the 20 to life. And told him I would cooperate. <laughs> because you were never going to be there for the sentencing. Because I was going to be dead. Right, right. Okay. But I wasn't dead. My whole plan backfired. So then when I came, they held me to that plea. And they fucking, and they, obviously they didn't give me any credit for any cooperation. And they enhanced me five years for uh, 60 months for um, taking off of, you know, obstruction of justice and failure to appear. Right. So 25 years. Yeah. Did you... Did, do a 2255? Did you do anything? I did, did everything, man. Oh, okay. You went through all the, the whole Fuck process it. of trying to... Lost everything. Yeah. You yeah. Know, back, dude, back then in the 90s, you couldn't get, you couldn't get any play for anything. Only if you went to trial, you could have went to play. So I would say that to any of your listeners. Really? I mean, you got two choices when you get busted, man. Either fucking cooperate fucking fully and fucking get as little time as you can. If you're not going to do that, 
go to trial, man. That's that's the only way you're going to retain your rights. So, you know, yeah. like I'm saying, you know, uh, don't try to do anything halfway. Don't try to outsmart the motherfuckers like I did. You're just going to get fucked. Yeah. Um, fuck. 25 years, bro. What the fuck? And then I, I heard on the uh, on the other podcast where you're talking about the, the you were talking about, um, you know, being uh, the, the different prisons and the. Uh, you know, the whole thing. And, uh, and you mentioned Coleman and, and uh, Whitey Bulger. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, I was in the medium there yeah. at, at, at uh, Coleman. I used to write Whitey Bulger. Yeah, yeah, you told me, you told me that. Um, Dude, he has the most awful handwriting. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking, you can barely read his writing, dude. It's like... He was also like 100. He was, how was he, like 70-something? You gotta have something? like a fucking magnifying glass, dude. I sent him the Rolling Stone article about my case. It came out in 97 when I was in, when I was in FCI Beckley. And he wrote me a whole fucking letter on the Rolling Stone, my Rolling Stone article. Like, I still got that. I don't know. I think I might put it up on eBay one say, day. I was going to say, any, any letters from him would be worth uh, something. Uh, let's see if somebody give me, like, I'll start the bidding at 10000 <laughs> Um. All right, so uh, we're going to do another podcast about just about what you're doing now because when you went to prison, you started writing, and and that's you know, and yeah. although I mean, although the the, the true crime story is, is cool, you know, to me, I mean, that's like like you're at a spot now in your career where I'd love to be in a few years from now, you know. Yeah. Um, no, the whole the whole prison. I mean, it was a lot of time I had to do, but whatever. I got three college degrees. I got a master's degree. I started writing books, and every day in prison, my thing was. What can I do today for when I get out? So, I mean, everything I've done, it's, it's, it was all planned, dude. I mean, I'm very methodical. Yeah. You know how I do stuff. I do everything one step at a time. You know, I research. I'm not trying to jump from one to 10. You know, I don't mind taking the steps. I'm very methodical. So prison, even though I had to do 21 years, I was very methodical in that 21 years. And I did everything that I needed to do to put me in the position where I am now. You know, I started writing true crime stories when I was in prison. Uh, I didn't write any fiction stories. Like I've heard your, your how you started writing. It's like some of the gangster guys' stories, and and uh, and some uh, some were of what fiction kind of fiction. Started that no, way. No, everything was pretty much nonfiction. non-fiction? My first book, okay. Prison Stories, was true, but I wrote it as fiction because you know I didn't want to be like a snitch in right. prison. Right, you and everybody's so they're always so worried about. Oh, what if I tell you something that I could get? Well, then well, let's not talk about that, or we'll change yeah. the names, but. So yeah, I, I started doing that. I was say, it was the same thing. Like I, I heard your interview before. So it's basically like, look, I'm in prison. And what, when I was in prison, I saw all the other guys. They're learning to play an instrument. They're taking horticulture classes uh, or they're, they're, they're playing softball. And it's like you're spending 10 years of your life or 15 years. And you're an amazing you know handball player. But when you... But you came in with no education. You've only sold drugs. You know, you're an amazing handball player when you get out, but you're, you're in your 50s now. The fuck mm. are you going to do when you get out of prison? None of, and the guys that were taking horticulture are only concerned about taking it because they plan on buying, burning a bunch of houses and growing marijuana. And the guys that are taking the stuff as far as like, um, I forget what they called that class, where it was basically about how to run a restaurant. So highest failure rate out there, get a restaurant. So what you want to do is you want to put a guy who has no money in a situation where he can open a restaurant and fail. Or real estate. Or real estate or something. It's like you don't have any experience, you have no way to do this. So my point is, to me, I thought, what can I do in here? And the one, you can't really work, but the one thing they, they will let you do is they will let you write 
They will let you publish books. They will let you write stories. You can write for magazines and you can make money that way. You can't run a business, but they can't stop you from doing that's the one thing they will let you do. And there were so many amazing stories. I would hear guys tell stories. I heard for years, I'd listen to stories and I'd think, how is that not a movie? How has no one written your story? And they can't write their own stories because you don't see yourself the way you really are. So that's when I came in. I wrote my own story and then I started writing other guys' stories. And, you know, I hope, I figured someday I'll get out of prison. I'll have all these stories and I'll try and get them turned into documentaries or movies. IP. IP. I started collecting IP. And so, but you, you know, but you're way ahead of where I am. I just like to be where you're at at some point in the future. That's my, like my goal. That's like, that's my dream. That's what I laid in bed at night in my bunk and thought, well, if I get out, I could do this and I could do this and I do this. And I had a whole building block in my head, you know, plan. You got Well, that's how you do it. You got to manifest it. You got to talk about it. You got to put it out there. You got to make it reality. I'm a, I'm a firm believer in, you know, um, like moving forward, positivity and just saying what I'm going to do and then doing it. Right. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a firm believer in that. Like I don't, like even in prison, prison is a very negative place, right? And when I first started writing, you know, even the guards, the other prisoners, they'd be like, you know, you can't do that. They'd always told me, like, I can't do this. And like, I would read the policy and I'd be like, man, I can do this. Yeah. You know, so, and so even out here, I'm like, I will not, I cannot stand negativity. Anybody that is like negative or like second guesses me what I'm trying to do. And like, like I say, sometimes like, you know, I'm, I'm doing these documentaries now, you know, I got white boy on Netflix and you know, some people that might be like the pinnacle, but to me, it's just, it's just like, like another ladder on the rung. You know, I tell, I want to be the Quint, the next Quentin Tarantino. I want to do, you know, scripted, you know, fiction, fictional, like drug, you know, crime movies, you know, or sometimes maybe based on a real event, but you know, like, dude, like I want to do like hundred million dollar budget movies. Right. You know, like I'm not fucking around. Like I'm, I'm already looking right now from do this documentary stuff. I'm looking to jump to like the three to five million dollar indie flick. And then, you know, then I'm looking to jump to like a 20 million, you know, 50, 60. And then, you know, I want to do like a fucking Marvel movie. Right. I want to do the purple man. I don't know if you know who the purple man is. He's a, he's this criminal character. He's like in a lot of Spider-Man comic books, but he's like, he wears like a gangster suit and he's all purple and he has like these, uh, I don't even know how to say it. It's like, is it called fur, fur gnomes or something? So it's like he can emit from his body. Pheromones, 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 pheromones. So yeah. he can permit, he can emit those from his body and make you do what he says. So that's like his superpower, but he's like I had, a villain. I had an ex-girlfriend like that. Yeah. A lot. I think a lot of women are like that. <laughs> especially on men. But, uh, so, but he's like a super villain. So I want to do like the purple man movie. You know, I also want to do, uh, I want to remake the princess bride. Right. Oh, nice. Nice. You know I saying? love the. You guys don't even know what the princess. Bride I want to remake the princess bride So sad, bro. with like, with, with good CGI. Nice. You know, like a Tolkienistic version of the princess bride, but keep the humor and the sweetness. And then, uh, another movie I want to remake. I want to remake, uh, you know, harder they come. You know, the, the the classic or harder they fall. The classic Jamaican movie. Okay. Yeah. So it's like from 1971. You know, it's about uh, you know, Jimmy Cliff's in it. So he's about like a, a, a up and coming reggae, you know, dance hall guy, but like he's involved in crime. So I want to remake that. Just like think how they remade Scarface, right? So I want to remake uh, you know, that old Jamaican movie, except you know, set it in like you know the hip hop era. 
you know, and, and have a guy who's like, he's trying to be a rapper, but he's involved in crime and he ends up, you know, going to jail for being a crime. Like a lot of the stories we, uh, you know, heard about in federal prison. But, um, yeah, my whole thing, man, why I started writing, because I, I kind of looked at it. I started taking college classes and I was like. When you were in prison. Yeah, yeah, when I was in is, prison. Which is difficult, by the way. Like everybody thinks that, oh, yeah, they offer this. They offer, Listen, man, you basically, you're doing everything yourself. There's, yeah. They might have some person who's supposed to help you, but they're half-assed about yeah. it. So it's and basically plus, all on you. And plus, when I first went in, they had the Pell Grants, right? But by like 96, they, they abolished yeah. the Pell Grants. So they didn't even fund the college courses. So my parents paid for all my college courses. I did all my shit correspondence. So I got the AA degree from Penn State. I got the BA from bachelor or from uh, University of Iowa. And actually, that, that was one of my best moves when I got in that program because University of Iowa is like famous for this a writing program. You know, you got to the writing program. You got to go there. You know, it's like on campus. But a lot of the instructors that I was doing correspondence courses through were the instructors from that famous writing course, you know, doing like extra work for extra money. Right. And so I, I had the benefit of these instructors and I was taking all writing heavy because in there you can go like a business administrative route or you can go like a humanities route. You know, and if you go like a humanities liberal arts, it's like a lot of writing, creative writing, journalism, you know, reading a lot of books and writing papers. And, um, Eventually, I got my master's degree. I got my master's degree from uh, University of California. So, um, but during that whole time, that that's how I learned to write. You know, so it's not like I just started putting pen to paper or whatever. I like took college courses, you know, and I learned to write. I already was creative. You know, I, I was kind of creative, you know, my whole life. You know, I used to write poetry, play in bands, all that shit like that. You know, I was like dungeon master. Right. You know what I'm saying? Creating all these worlds so and they, shit. It's so yeah. funny. Like, they don't know. Yeah. They don't know what that means. Yeah. What a so, dungeon uh, master is. Dungeons and dragons. That was like the, oh, yeah. no, wow. Listen, there's so many things. There's so many things that people, I'll say to 80s. somebody my age, and I'll always look over at Colby, and Colby's just like, he has no clue what I'm yeah. talking about. That's the 80s shit. The, it's it, the 80s was a wonderful time. But pre-internet was, I think it was a better world, really. But, uh, you know, so the whole time I'm getting these degrees, I, I'm, I'm writing. So first I started writing, I, I, my first big success was actually writing prison basketball. So, you know, because like, like in there, dude, there's like these dudes, they're like phenomenal basketball players, yeah. dude. And like, and like, like how you were talking about, like they spend all this time. They spend like 10, 15 years just playing basketball. But, you know, I mean, they can never be professional because when they get out, they're going to be too old. But like in there, dude, like these dudes are phenomenal basketball players. So I started writing about this one guy named Ron Jordan. He was from Harlem. He had like that Rucker Park game, dude. And this dude was built like a, a linebacker, right? He was maybe like 6'1", like 240, right? But this dude could like slam dunk. He had like all the handles. He like embarrassed dudes. They, they called him Ron Jordan the abuser because he used to like abuse people. He would like do all the stuff, like fake somebody out, act like he's going to the bas basket and with the easy layup, but he would pull it back to let the dude guard him again. You know, because it, it was just like the, the, the man on man, like macho shit, dude, this dude. And he could dunk and he could shoot threes. This dude was scoring like 60 points a game. And everybody used to come out to the gym to see him. So that was like my first big success. I started writing about this dude and the other prison basketball players. And um, yeah, I was writing for this website called Hoops Hype. You know, which now they're they're like on, I don't know, they're like, uh, I think USA Today or something bottom. So they're like this big. But that time they were just like this little uh, kind of hip hop, right. you know, uh, hip hop basketball website. And then I started writing for Slam, which is kind of like a hip hop basketball magazine. And then from there, I started doing the more gangster stories. I started writing for Don Diva and Feds. 
which are like they call like you know the the street the street Bibles. Yeah, yeah they wouldn't even let know? they wouldn't yeah. let those into the like those are prison. like the most popular magazines in yeah. prison, man. Like guys would get them sent in, they'd have the they'd have the they started putting covers, yeah, yeah new fake covers, covers yeah, yeah. Fake covers to get like them you in. get one of those magazines in prison, like like dude, the line is like two hundred long. Yeah. Everybody wants to read it, you know. So um, I started writing for them, uh, Don Diva, Feds, and um, really I I, I I formed a journalism uh, career in prison because yeah. that was like the only thing I could do. I was like, what the fuck can I do? I was like, I can write, you know. So. Um, and then really my biggest break came, um, this is probably like early 2000s. I just started writing re really like around 99. So, uh, you know, at first I was just writing like in the prison, like I was doing prison sports newsletters, like that they post on the boards and yeah, stuff. Yeah. I, I was doing that. I did that for six years while I was taking the college classes. So then I started doing the Don Diva stuff and the prison basketball. And then um, there was this editor at Vice named Jesse Pearson. So this was like when Vice was just basically a magazine. They had a website, but they weren't huge like they are today. So this right. is like early 2000s. You know, so they're like this kind of low rent GQ. You know, they have this big thing. It's like do's and don'ts where they do like the fashion, like dress like this and they make fun of people. They take pictures. So he had, he was a big fan of my work from Don Diva. So he reached out to me, you know, and um, I started writing, dude, dude, and they were paying me like, dude, they were paying me like $500 a month. Right. To write a column. I wrote a column, like 1,200 words called I'm Busted. And it was in every magazine for like fucking two or three years. $500. Like I was living like a yeah. king on yeah. 500 a month. 500 bucks in prison's a lot of fucking money. Fuck, dude. I was like, everybody thought I was like a millionaire. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And so that was like my first big break because I started writing for that. And then uh, I kept for, I kept writing for Vice as they kept growing. And I, kept, I was like their prison guy. You know, I would do like their prison. And then I got more into true crime. Then I started doing stuff for Penthouse. I started doing stuff for The Fix, War on Drug stuff. And um, how the whole white boy thing came about is, uh, you know, I started writing him around 2005 because I, I started doing my Street legend stuff. Like I had all this material from Don Diva. And Don Diva could only, it's a magazine, so they could only fit like so much. And I had all this extra material. And I like all the dudes, they kept coming back to me. They're like, dude, what about this picture? Or what about this? You want to use some of the stuff? So eventually, you know, like they were upset with me because everything was not in the magazine that they gave me. You know, so eventually I came up with my Street Legends series. I've published uh, Prison Stories 2005, Street Legends 2008. So... At the same time, um, I reach out to White Boy Rick because I'm in FCI Gilmer and Beckley, Beckley, FCI Beckley and FCI, FCI Gilmer in West Virginia. And there's all these Detroit dudes. So I'm hearing about this dude, White Boy Rick. Hold on. You know who White Boy Rick is? Okay. You guys saw the, the movie. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen it, but I've seen the trailers and stuff. Yeah. All right. So I, I, I start writing him because I want to put him in like my Street Legends book. Yeah. Right. And, and basically my street legends books are just like all these uh, African-American drug lords that are, are part of, uh, you know, the lyrical lore of hip hop. Right. You know, and gangster rap. I, I kind of uh, I just kind of romanticize and glorify it. And I make them into these Billy the Kid, you know, Jesse James yeah, yeah. type figures. Because, you know, I was writing I was writing for my peers in prison. And also I was a white guy writing about African-American dudes like in prison, like. You know, that doesn't happen. I mean, you've been yeah, in prison. Yeah. That's not like that's not like something normal, you no. know? And and the only reason I even have the juice to do that is because, you know, I had the long sentence. I, I'd been in a little bit. And, you know, the longer you're in, the more stripes you get, yeah, yeah. you know? So um, by the time I do this, you know, I'm like in 10 years. So, you know, I got, I got a lot of stripes. And 
I played sports. I was I was a sports fanatic. I'm like really athletic. I would be like the only white dude like out there playing ball with all the black dudes. Like yeah. like I would I was like the dude like you know you go to the yard like you go to the yard at lunch I'm playing ball you go to the yard at recall I'm playing ball. Yeah. You know I played like three hours straight. I didn't give a fuck. That was like how I did my time. Yeah. I I actually sat at a table in the library with five guys that were writing, uh, five black guys that were all writing um, urban novels. I was the only one writing true crime. But I, and I was the white guy at the room or at the table because I was the guy that, you know, as racist as this is going to sound, it was it was basically you don't have Google. What you've got is a white guy. So they'd say, you know, I don't understand. How do you say that? Hey, Cox. It was always, hey, Cox. Hey, Cox. And I'd be like, no, it's this. It's that. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. OK, this. That. Yeah. So, I mean, I was, you know, to sit at that table, everybody thought I was like a, you know, like you must be a cool guy to be sitting at the table with all those guys because the white, the white guys and black guys very seldomly mix in person. You were just Google. Yeah, I was Google. Yeah, I had a, I had a purpose. You were like that smart guy from the 80s that, that Google fucking yeah. made obsolete. Yeah, exactly. In prison, only in prison. Yeah, yeah but in prison, like, they still need that guy, that guy who knows everything. Out here, I'm semi-smart, but yeah. in prison, fucking super genius in prison because the IQ is so low. But yeah. anyway. No, that's what that's what I, I tell people too, right? Because look, like since I've been out, like, dude, I, I've been to Cannes, man. I go to Sundance and I'm around like, dude, these people, they went to Harvard and Columbia and dude, they just speak. And I'm like, I just want to be around them so I can learn to speak better because they're like so eloquent and they use all these fucking big words. And like, like I, I feel like a brute around them, right? Yeah. But like in prison, I'm like, like you said, I'm like the super genius in fucking prison. And then I get out around all these fucking talented writers and filmmakers and people that went to all these Ivy League schools and come from all this money. And I just, I feel like a fucking brute, dude. Yeah. I'm telling you, it's, it's fucking crazy. This, this is like my, my, my biggest fucking dilemma today, you know, because a lot of people that are like, oh, no, you're eloquent. You can talk. And I'm like, no, I don't talk like that. I'm a fucking, I talk like a brute. Right. I talk like an educated brute. Yeah, That's I, yeah I among my about. friends on the outside, I'm like a, I, I'm practically a thug around these guys. And to me, it's like, as far as like masculinity, like I always say, like I'm, I'm like a four or five on the masculinity scale from one to one. one oh to yeah. 10. There's some tough dudes right. in prison. But they got prison, tough motherfuckers. Oh, in prison, yeah. I'm like a one, maybe yeah, a zero. Yeah, I might yeah. as well be wearing a dress when I'm in yeah, prison. Yeah, Out yeah. here, I'm a five. Prison, yeah. I'm a zero practically. Yeah. I'm, I'm this far from being a fucking punk in prison. I mean, that's how they look yeah. at you. You're a soft white guy. You're, you're harmless. Yeah. But yeah, it's funny how just everything changes out here. Yeah. So, so, you know, so white, white boy, Rick, I started writing him. Right. And like, I want to tell his story. Right. But I want to like romance, romanticize it. I want to make it gangster. You know, I want to glorify it. Cause that's what I'm doing in my street legend right. series. And that's, I'm hearing these, all this stuff about him. Like, who is this white kid that was running all these, you know, black organized crime in Detroit when he was like 16 or 17. And I kind of identify him with him too, you know, because we were both young white dudes. We both got a lot of time, you know. We were both involved in stuff as a teenager, so you know, there's a lot of similarities, you know. So I'm writing him, and we start writing, and he starts telling me like this totally opposite story, you know, how like he was in a foreman, and you know, the police prostituted him and buried him, and and I I didn't really get it at first because I'm like I'm like man I don't. I don't, I'm not writing about informants. Like my, my base is like the other prisoners, you know, and I'm in like yeah. medium security prisons. I'm like, these dudes ain't going to fucking, if I write some shit, they're going to be like, you're writing about a snitch, you know, or whatever. So it, it, it took me a couple years to kind of get my head around his story and, and, and how to write it. And like I say, it took me to get older and it took my writing to evolve and it probably took me going to a low. Yeah. 
where, you know, they don't carry it like the same, you know, cause I did 12 years in the mediums and then I did nine years in the lows. So it was like this kind of evolution in my writing where, you know, I went from writing this hardcore death before dishonor shit to, uh, you know, more about the injustices of the drug war. Cause I started seeing the bigger picture more, you know, as I got older and I started writing more and, and like I say, also going to the low gave me more room to explore this stuff with not being considered this or be considered that. So, um, yeah, 2012, I wrote this story about his case for the fix, dude. And like the shit fucking went viral, dude. Like it was my first experience of having the prison basketball shit was pretty popular, but like this shit, like fucking went super fucking viral on the fix. This is a like drug war fucking site. Right. And, um, just brought a ton of attention to me, you know, and, um, the whole time I was already thinking, you know, cause I was writing books, uh, you know, from 2005 till I got on 2015, I wrote eight books, and um, then when I got out, I took two of those books and I divided it up the chapters, you know, and, and put twelve out like digital books, you know, to make it like twenty, even though it's like from the same material. And then I had a couple more, so I think I got like twenty four books out right now. But once I started doing the books, you know, and I was kind of doing the journalism, and I was like, man, really, I want I want to do movies, I want to do visual stuff, you know. Um, but it was just kind of you know, learn it. And like when I took my master's degree, I took like a lot of film type courses, you know, at least reading the books as much right. as I could in there. And I, I did have a couple, like they would let me send in some DVDs, you know, so I could watch different shit. But, uh, really like everything I was doing, man, was basically for gearing up, you know? So, you know, I even like, dude, I read a whole bunch of books, like, like books on like shots, like that explains all the different shots, like in narratives and stuff like that. And, yeah, I just went crazy. So I was like, you know, reading. Because in there, that's all you got time to do yeah. is read. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, you might as well educate yourself. I don't think, I don't think I read five books since I've been out in six years. But, you know, um, yeah, so I kind of hit the ground running. And, um, you know, I did more pieces on White Boy Rick's story for like Vice News and Vice and some other places. So, um, but still, when I first got out, though, I was just a journalist. I was working as a journalist. And then I met the dude, Sean Reck, the director of White Boy, and he had Transition Studios. He had just done this movie, A Murder in the Park, that was on Showtime. And I actually interviewed him for that, for that, for Vice. Right. And he found out about my backstory, and we started talking. And at first, we were going to do like this uh, prison expose, like on, on, on how all these sub-industries are built around the prisons. Right. You know, like, like Keefe Coffee yeah, yeah, yeah. and all the hotels, and how it's all kind of interconnected. You know, with the the dude, like the senator brings the prisons there and it's all his friends, the businessmen who form all the businesses around the prison. So we were looking at something like that. And then we were talking and uh, I showed him some. It was like right when they announced like the White Boy Rick movie with Matthew McConaughey. And I had shown him some of my articles. I go, did you hear about this? And he's like, yeah, I heard they're going to do that movie. And I'm like, you know, I know this dude. And I'm like, check out. Here's these articles. You know, I wrote like four or five articles. about. And he's like, what? He's like, he's from Cleveland. So he's like, yeah, I heard about this dude. You know, he's like our age. So he's like, I heard about this dude, man. And uh, then he was like, man, he was like, you got access to him? And I was like, yeah. He's like. I'm looking to do my next doc, man. Let's do this. You know, so it was just like lucky. I made the right relationship at the right time when he was looking for something, you know, and it, there was a hype because of the white boy Rick movie. Right. So it made him interested. And um, for that, he actually, he'd actually, you know, told me like he came with a couple different proposals, like, you know, let's do it like this. Let's do it like this, you know, trying to lessen, you know, maybe kind of my role or just kind of, you know, 
buy the idea or whatever. And, right. I, and I told him, you know, I knew how to tell a story, but I didn't really know how to make a film. So I told him, I said, look, man, I said, you know, I want, I want to be by your side. You know, I want you, you know, whatever, if you can give me something at the end, whatever, but you don't got to pay me nothing. Now I say, I want to, you know, keep by, I want you to mentor me. Also, I asked him that because this dude had cut his teeth doing like Crime Stoppers. He did like 200 Crime Stopper shows for all the networks. Yeah. And he had won like nine regional Emmys in Ohio for all his work on these 200 shows. So I knew dude was something special. I knew he knew what he was doing because when I walked in his office, he had nine fucking Emmys. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, man. So I made the deal with him. I said, look, dude, I'm, I'm going to get you everything you need for this film. I'm going to get you all the access. I'm going to get you all the, the people you need to make this film. And I go, I just want you to, uh, you know, involve me in the process, man. And, and he, he was very fucking cool about it. So like a lot of times we would do the interviews and I would be there. Sometimes I might watch the camera, sometimes not, but always at the end of the interview, when he was done, he would give me five minutes in the director's chair. So, you know, actually white boy. So I, I, I got a, a, write, a, a writer credit and a producer credit on that. And Sean Reck, an Emmy winning director, trained me how to be a director, you know, mentored me over that, like, you know, nine to 12 months that we did the shooting, you know, and then I worked with his editor, you know, and him as we edited it, you know, over, over like the next nine to 12 months. So that was like, uh, you know, so really, I mean, Sean Reck, I mean, he, he taught me a lot. And then also like, like Rick, man, Rick's, Rick's still my real good friend to this day. You know, Rick, a lot, there was a lot of interest in Rick. He had the Hollywood movie, man. Rick didn't have to, you know, give us our blessing or, or right. participate in that, in that white boy documentary. He did that uh, because of our relationship. Cause I told him, cause I said, look, dude, I said, I want to make films. I said, this dude got the money to make this film. And I go, first off, you know, our first goal was to get him out. Yeah. You know, and he had got this other guy out from a murder in the park, right? So that was kind of like his track record. But that was like the first thing. But I said, I told Rick, I said, the second thing is, I want to make films, motherfucker. I said, do this for me. Because, you know, he was kind of first. He was like, oh, who's this guy? And his, his representation were, oh, we don't know about this guy. He only made this one film. Who the fuck is he? But I told him, I said, look, I believe in this dude. I, I've seen his, you know, team. He can do it, you know. And I go, this is my entrance into the film world and what I want to do. And so like, I, I will always be indebted, you know, to Rick, especially, you know, for giving me that opportunity by giving his blessing to that, but also, you know, to Sean Reck for, right. for teaching me everything that he taught me. And it's on, it's on Netflix right now. Is it playing yeah. on Netflix? Yeah, it's on Netflix So it was right on, now. what was it on before Discovery and then no, Netflix? No, it was on Stars. It was on Stars for 18 months. And, and now then, Netflix. Yeah, then it went on Netflix. And it was crazy because when it first came out, it first came out probably like, uh, you know, almost three years ago. And um, when it first came out, I knew it was a good film, right? But this is like pre-pandemic. This is like uh, pre-Black Lives Matters exploding all over the uh, you know, right. world internationally, you know? This is pre a lot of things. And I think when it first, I thought like everything that's happening now was gonna happen when it first came out, man. Cause I was like, man, this film is awesome, man. Sean Reck and his team, you know, I, I contributed to it, but you know, I'll give credit where credit is due. I mean, that was Sean Reck and his editor, you know? I was probably like the third most important person on that or maybe the fourth. But, uh, you know, I knew it was a good film. I knew it was powerful and it did, it helped to get Rick out. You know, not that it got Rick out by itself, but it helped. But um, I thought everything that's happening now was going to happen then. But I think because the world, the way the world was, you know, people, you know, they didn't believe it or, you know, there was too many rabbit holes or they didn't believe in the level of corruption that we were showing and exposing, 
you know, and plus I think everybody was still kind of in the rat race of America, you know, capitalism, trying to make money. So, um, you know, so it had like a, you know, 18 month run on stars and, you know, it didn't really get a lot of recognition or turn a lot of heads. And then, you know, then like we, we signed the Netflix deal and, um, it went on Netflix, like right at the end of the pandemic, you know, like last April. And I think it might have something to do with like the tiger King effect maybe, but it, man, it went on Netflix, dude, and it just fucking exploded. It was like it was brand fucking new, man. Right. So the first two weeks it was on Netflix, it's, it's like top 10 on Netflix, not top 10 documentaries, like top 10 movies, series, Overall, everything yeah. for two weeks straight, right? New York Times did like a little fucking write-up on it. And uh, then, you know, like like I say, then like they said like in April and May, like it had 20 million fucking views. Right. So it, it's crazy because that just, for me... It put a lot of wind in my sails because I had a bunch of different stuff I wanted to do that I'm working on now, but I didn't really have the money. Right. But it just kind of blew me up. And I always look at it like, I look at it like sports. Like, all right, New England Patriots won the Super Bowl. Everybody knows Tom Brady's a man, but all those other free agents on that team are getting big contracts. Yeah. So, like, I was part of something that was has been extremely successful, you know, on Netflix and that a ton. And it's it's like recognition, the, the recognition value, dude. Like you could talk to anybody, you know, most people, they know fucking white boy Rick and they know fucking white boy on Netflix. Right. You know, it gives that that recognition, like that name value where I do like I could just meet somebody on the plane and be like, oh, yeah, I did white boy on Netflix. And they'll be like, you know, they, they know, know it. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. So now dude, I got a ton of shit, man. I'm, I'm doing a uh, I'm doing a cannabis documentary. A cannabis docuseries on Humboldt County called Tangled Roots that I just uh, I just premiered the teaser at uh, the Emerald Cup, which is like the World Series of Cannabis just last weekend. You know, I got on stage and got to talk about it. I had all the farmers with me. Um, I'm doing an LSD docu docuseries that I'm going to premiere the first episode of it in San Francisco on Bicycle Day. You know, that's like when Albert Hoffman, that's like when Albert Hoffman first synthesized LSD and took it and discovered LSD. They call it Bicycle Day on April 19th. All right. So I'm doing it at this, uh, this thing in San Francisco. <clears throat> and then um, I also got this other docuseries I'm working on uh, about the mafia and heroin called Dopeman. And so I'm, I'm making arrangements, you know. I've kind of come up with this plan because all this stuff I do, it's, it's, it's kind of niche. It's kind of true crime. Um, it's really hard to get in the film festivals. You know, I've been going to all the big film festivals. I've been to Cannes. I've been to Sundance. You know, I've been talking to all these people. And um, I'm kind of seeing like these target uh, market audiences like the Emerald Cup or like an LSD specific event or like a mafia specific event. Right. Is These are almost like, like I, I think I can use these like my Sundance. You know, because I mean, you know, maybe I could get a Sundance, maybe not. But, you know, Sundance is only once a year and all my stuff's going to be finished up you know, like in the next six to eight months. So I'm, I'm looking for ways, like how can I create the hype, you know, in, in the press and make enough noise, you know, to make the streamers notice, yeah, I got White Boy on Netflix, but it's not like I got a direct cook up to Netflix, you right. know? So you still got to, you got to make the noise. That's why they have the film festivals because, you know, they write about these things and that brings the attention of the Amazons, the Hulus, the Netflix. And really in today's game, it's not about going to the theater. It's not about going to DVD. It's about getting on these streamers, man. That's how, that's how you're going to make your money back and that, that's how you're going to keep working. And really... Right. Really, like anything in life with film, it's, uh, you know, it's about you got to keep working, man. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So you, you, you got to get this stuff because, I mean, that shit's expensive. We spent, like, White Boy costs like 250000 to make. 
you know, and like some of these uh, docu-series that, I, that I'm doing now, you know, that are like 180, 225 minutes. I mean, these are like, I mean, we're spending like, you know, $500,000, $750,000 to, to complete these projects. Right. Hey, if you like the video, do me a favor and subscribe. Hit the bell for notifications. Also, we're going to have uh, any links that uh, link to, um, to Seth's story or to anything that Seth wants me to put in the uh, description will be in the description. There'll be a bunch of links in there, hopefully. And uh, that's it. And I appreciate it. See ya.